Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So we just finished talking about the problems with the story of one of the key eyewitnesses, Felton Thomas. So now it's time to talk about the second star eyewitness, Edward Williams. And there are just so many things wrong with his story. It seems unbelievable enough that Williams would just hang around outside the Ziegler home for nearly an hour on Christmas Eve, waiting for Ziegler to accompany him to the furniture store. It also doesn't make sense that Don Fickey would report walking past Williams in his pickup truck when he went to knock on the front door but Williams never mentioned this at all in his statement. This is something that really bothered me is that if this was true, if you were sitting in the in the driveway in your pickup truck and someone's like looking around the house for one of his friends and you never note that another car came up that while you were waiting for your friend, other friends showed up. It seems like an important detail that you would want to talk about when trying to establish your timeline. And it's very odd because he did talk about the first time the Ficky stopped by, where he just said they stopped by the house, pulled into the driveway and went away, which matches their testimony. Yet he makes no mention of all of Ficky walking past him to the front door, which is a lot more memorable and notable. Yet he never mentions it. And it's weird on the part of Ficky and Edward Williams that we talked about earlier that Ficky doesn't like knock on the window and go like, hey, roll it down. Have you seen where Tommy Ziegler is? We're supposed to meet him. You see somebody sitting in the driveway and you would assume they're either there to meet Tommy or would know where Tommy is. But Chief Don Ficky, he's a police chief. He investigates. Why isn't he asking these questions? But also, I agree. The fact that Edward Williams doesn't mention him walking up to the door. How is them coming the first time but not walking up the driveway more impactful on his memory? That just doesn't make sense either. And if Williams was telling the truth about everything, then he has to be one of the most patient people ever because Tommy <laughs> told him, show up at my house, 7.20, 7.30 to make deliveries. And uh, he just makes him wait there for an hour. And there was one time where Tommy supposedly came back in the car with Charlie Mays and Felton Thomas. And he says, can you just hang on another 10 minutes and I'll be right back. And then he came back maybe a half hour later and Williams was still there. That was supposedly when he was firing the weapons with his friends. Yeah, during that time period. So it's kind of like, it's Christmas Eve. You, do you not have anything better to do than just hang out outside somebody's house waiting for them? Like, wouldn't you consider that extremely rude and then just take off? And you waited, yeah, and you waited an hour and a half and Ziegler didn't have bourbon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like, why are all these individuals investing so much time in these kind of vague, ambiguous things that aren't going to really provide them with any I don't know. There is no monetary reason. Like, why Why are you doing this? It's Christmas Eve. So I can understand how somebody could look at it and interpret it. The reason that they're all gathered together, the reason that they're waiting 
is because they themselves have participated in some sort of robbery because just this like nice guy thing that you're going to go and like hang out on Christmas Eve and help with doing this and that going to fire off a gun like you both said don't you have better things to do don't you have family to be with at this time that's what I would think don't you have kids that need Santa Claus toys put together not that I mean Santa would have already put them together but don't (laughs) don't you guys have families and it's Christmas and and who's working on Christmas Eve so I can't imagine saying yeah I'm gonna sit around for an hour and a half and wait for you go do all these deliveries and then I'll get to my family And again, like we've said throughout William's account of what happened at the furniture store is kind of absurd because if Ziegler did commit all those murders, I just don't believe that he would have let Williams escape so easily, at least not the way that Williams described. It's an incredibly organized plot and he just lets an eyewitness slip away for the second time that night. And Williams is the one that jumped over the fence and fled. Yeah, as I'm going to recap here, even if Ziegler's gun didn't work, I can't believe that he would just place the weapon in Williams's hand and not do everything in his power to stop him. I guess it's possible that Ziegler might let Felton Thomas run away because Thomas wasn't part of his original plan to begin with. But killing Williams and framing him for the murders was absolutely essential to his plan. Otherwise, he would have two independent witnesses who could go to the police with stories which completely contradicted his version of events, which is exactly what happened. And also, wouldn't he have already have killed his wife and his in-laws at this point when they're saying that they ran away? Oh, yeah. Like, uh, that was his very first step. He killed his wife and his in-laws. Then he lured Charlie Mays into the store, which is when Felton Thomas ran away. And then he supposedly tried to lure Williams into the store, and he ran away, too. And you remember that misunderstanding where he fired a gun at him and (laughs) said, oh, I'm sorry, I I mistook you for someone else, but I'm going to put the gun in your hand. And after that, we're cool, bro. I remember that. (laughs) Now, from the other perspective, you could also say that that Williams is telling you that because his fingerprints could be on one of the weapons. Oh, exactly. I mean, that's what's so astonishing is that he showed up to the police with the murder weapon and he just came up with an excuse that Tommy fired it and it jammed. So he just put it into my hand to regain my trust. So I ran away with it and he just let me get away. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, with the gun. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay. It also doesn't make much sense that Williams would run all the way across the street to the Kentucky Fried Chicken to use the phone. After he climbed over the chain link fence, he was in the parking lot of the Winter Garden Inn and could have just sought help right there. The whole episode at the KFC is the most problematic part of Williams' story. Virtually every eyewitness places Williams there between 20 and 40 minutes after his episode at the furniture store supposedly took place. Since the Nolan saw him at around the exact moment the police showed up at 921, their particular time frame cannot be wrong. That's right. The Nolan said, hey, look, I know for a fact the time he came here because we also saw the police show up at the furniture store. But that means, like we said, he would have had to somehow gotten lost or hung out for a little while in an all out panic to escape a mad gunman. It took him 20 to 40 minutes to walk to the KFC. It's just there's no way. And remember, Williams claimed he left the scene and hitched a ride because he couldn't get through to the police. But if the Nolans' claims are accurate, then Williams would have been right there when the police arrived at the furniture store. If Williams was a completely innocent victim and Tommy Ziegler had just tried to kill him, why wouldn't he just approach the police right then and there rather than taking off and disappearing for several hours? Especially for several hours. I could see him being nervous to go back towards where Tommy Ziegler would have been. 
But like we said, whether it was the B team or all the police chiefs in the city working that night, there's an easy way to get in touch with law enforcement. And whether it's finding an officer on the street or whether it's heading down to the police department, it didn't need to be several hours before he went and said, hey, I almost got killed. And there's something happening down at the furniture store. Yeah, it just it doesn't really make sense whatsoever. Even if it was the B team, why don't you just go to the Winter Garden Inn and call from there? I just don't get because you then have to go across the street to go to the KFC. It just feels like that extra step removed. And it does seem to call his timeline into question. On the clothing, Williams turned into the police was clearly different than the clothes he wore at the furniture store. As his shoes had no scuff marks, his pockets had no trace of gunshot residue, and all the witnesses at the KFC described him as wearing different colored clothes. Remember the entire brown ensemble? (laughs) (laughs) The brown on brown on brown. (laughs) Yes. Add in the fact that William's truck was found at the store and he had one of the murder weapons in his possession. And it's quite amazing that the police just took him at his word and didn't think he was involved. I don't think Williams originally intended to turn himself into the police. But since his truck was was parked at the location where four murders had taken place, he pretty much had no choice but to come forward and provide an explanation. And that's why he probably disappeared for several hours in order to kind of dream up a cover story for himself. Edward Williams has since passed away, so we may never know the full truth about his actions that night. The fact that he changed his clothes that it took him so long to get across the street. His story is full of problems, both for Williams and for this idea that he was with Tommy. It doesn't it doesn't make any sense in the story. And it is a shame that he, like many other people in this story that may actually know more information than they told, have passed away. I've had a real hard time trying to figure out how he got mixed up into this because unlike some of the other characters here, he did not have any history of violence or a criminal record, but I did hear that he was behind on his bills at this time, so he was financially desperate, so I could see him being lured into something like this. Like, maybe he didn't actually perform any murders himself, but he was convenient to have around as a witness in order to uh, implicate Tommy. Did he know some of the other players in the story? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I, I can't, I don't, I know he definitely knew Tommy. I don't know for certain if he knew uh, Charlie Mays at all, but as you can see, like Mays, Felton Thomas, and uh, Robert Foster, we know they probably knew each other, but Edward Williams is kind of an outlier. That's why this is really interesting. I think the, the financially desperate angle, and we've got a bunch of individuals who I think there's a lot of people when come December and you know, you've got families, you've got kids, they are in a very precarious financial position. So you could see how that could motivate somebody to on Christmas Eve commit a robbery such as that and why people would do something maybe outside of their character. Yeah, that would make sense to me, because for all we know, maybe Williams didn't expect anyone to be killed, but maybe he didn't plan for his truck to break down at the furniture store. But now that it happened, he had to come forward with a story about uh, being an innocent victim who had to escape being murdered himself and provide one of the guns, and it actually worked out for him in the long run because the police actually took his story at face value. They bought it. <laughs> like, what? Yeah, he fired the gun at me, then handed it over to me, and then I took it and I ran. It's like, what? You have a murder weapon and you ran away from the scene. The vehicle's there. This all points towards this individual, but yet they were like, hey, it all checks out. Yep, Tommy <laughs> Ziegler's our guy. And speaking of witnesses, let's discuss the mysterious disappearing witness, Robert Foster, 
who remained a quote-unquote typographical error for nearly 40 years before Lynn Marie Cardi confirmed he was actually a real person. This whole side story is one of the most jaw-droppingly bizarre things I've ever come across in a murder case. Up until the preliminary hearing, all the paperwork and news articles about this case listed Robert Foster as one of the key witnesses until he magically morphed into Felton Thomas. <laughs> and to top it off, Foster apparently attempted to rob a gas station across the street from the furniture store on the night of the murders, a piece of information the state conveniently withheld from the defense for many years. Unlike many of the other players in this case, Foster had an extensive criminal record and had spent time in prison for armed robbery. But to play devil's advocate, here's one potential explanation for how a genuine mix-up might have occurred. Like we mentioned earlier, a man resembling Foster was apparently seen alongside Charlie Mays' widow in the crowd outside the furniture store after the police arrived, and it seems odd that he would return to the scene like that if he was involved in the murders. Theoretically, if Foster accompanied Mrs. Mays to the police station that night and they took down his name, could something have gotten seriously crossed up so that Foster's name wound up being falsely listed as a witness on the arrest report? That's very impossible. But what's also concerning is the fact that he might have been doing a robbery and then instantly became this hero to a widow. So it's his whole story is very, very odd and convoluted. That's the thing with Foster is unlike people like Edward Williams and Charlie Mays, he had an extensive criminal background and was a violent felon. So I could totally picture him being involved in something like this. Can I just say in true crime, we're so often advocating for the devil. <laughs> Do you guys ever notice that? Yeah, I'm just going to play devil's advocate. We say it in these long series, like probably once every episode. But I guess it's just we have to do it because you need to examine both sides of it. And this is one of those cases that there's so many different sides. So for all of you listening, yeah, we we can't really help it. We have to. We've got to be the devil's advocate. Throughout and there's this a case. lot of devils. Yeah, there's a lot of <laughs> devils to play. To play yes. <laughs> Even if it was a genuine mistake, it really doesn't reflect well on the police. Lead investigator Don Fry has given conflicting stories over the years about how Foster's name accidentally wound up in this report. But Fry's signature is on there, and he admits that he signed it without reading it. That seems like incredibly sloppy police work, since entire cases can get thrown out of court when the paperwork isn't filled out properly. It just seems like too much of a coincidence that Foster's parole date would be terminated on the date before the preliminary hearing and he seemingly vanished from the state of Florida. It's incredibly weird. It's very, very odd timing. But this is, I wish I had had Fry in one of my classes because I would have reamed him about the importance of <laughs> proper note-taking, filling paperwork out properly. You know, my students email me and they're like, why did I lose points? And I said, because you didn't follow directions, right? There's, there's an element of having to follow the rules and to be very purposeful in what you're writing down on paperwork. And I do that because in the justice system, it matters. A simple error like this is a big deal. And it seems like Fry made several instances like that and refused to really take accountability for the fact that he either messed up or he didn't pay attention to the little details that he was writing down. Oh, Ashley, what does he have to learn from you? The schools he's been to. Tell him oh, a lot of things. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice callback there. <laughs> nice job, Jules. The schools I've been to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he needed to come. He needed to come to ours. That was quick wit, girl. <laughs> yeah, that told him everything that he needs to know about crime scene interpretation and how to take a Freudian interpretation of literally every piece of evidence. 
I should also mention that on the Tommy Ziegler website, there's actually uh, an interview that Lynn Marie Cardi did with another veteran law enforcement officer where she brings this topic up. Have you heard of very many instances of someone signing an arrest report without actually reading it? And he pretty much responds, nope, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. No, no <laughs> decent, no decent cop would ever do that. Yeah, I'm not putting my name on something that's a legal document unless I read it, especially when it's talking about my my career on the line. I'm going to read it. But then what happens? Does he like, does she present it to him and go, well, you did it this one time? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if she, I think she did because he was interviewed for that documentary I talked about, Question of Innocence, and he kept going that whole thing. Well, it was a typographical error and oh, my secretary did it, but he doesn't really take any accountability. <laughs> I think the key is determining Charlie Mays's role in this whole thing. Was he truly an innocent victim or a willing participant in a murder robbery? Even if Mays was a participant, it's possible that Tommy still shot him in self-defense because after he was attacked, Tommy claimed he grabbed a 357 Magnum from his desk drawer and fired off some shots. Tommy has always maintained that when he was shot and passed out, he overheard voices mention Mays's name and say that they had to kill him because he had been hit. If Tommy is telling the truth and Mays was wounded, his accomplices likely finished him off by beating him to death with the linoleum crank. At the time, Mays was a pretty well-liked figure in the town's black community, and most people had a hard time believing that this hard-working family man could be involved in murder. But there were also rumors that Mays had gambling debts, which, if true, might have made him desperate enough to be roped into something illegal. And we have no way of knowing if this was all supposed to become a murder in the end, right? Like maybe it was supposed to be a robbery and Mays ends up being killed in this this attack that goes, you know, more more chaotic than what they had planned. So what stinks is that he really probably does hold the key to this case. And yet he was one of the victims who's dead at the scene. So whether involved or not, that was a he's a critical character at the store. And and we have no way of knowing why and how he ended up there. The one thing that I keep coming back to, though, is the blood on that pant leg. Yes. Like, I don't think it could have gotten there innocently. There's no reason for Perry Sr.'s blood to be on his pants. That's very true. And the fact that they refuse to really examine that any further is is a huge problem because it's possible Mays got that on his pants via transfer splatter while he was attacking Perry Sr. But here's an interesting point to discuss. When Mays visited the furniture store that morning, he was accompanied by his wife and Brian Ned a 16-year-old Black kid who worked on his fruit-picking crew. Now, Mrs. Mays claimed that her husband told her he'd make arrangements to return to the store that night to pick up the TV set, but she could only take his word for it. But Brian Ned, he claimed, actually overheard a conversation between Mays and Ziegler where they made those arrangements. In his deposition, Ned testified that he heard Ziegler tell Mays to meet him at the store after closing to pick up the TV set. If this is true, then it would lend considerable credence to the theory that Ziegler was guilty because Ziegler always denied that such an arrangement had been made. I still don't know why you would need to come back. Just pull around and let me put the TV set in the back of your car. It's very weird to me that we're going to make this layaway agreement after hours when my store is closed. Just take it home now. It's Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas. I have your information. I know where you live. This whole TV set thing again, doesn't seem to line up for me. I mean, the whole, whole reason Mays was there that morning to begin with was to get linoleum. And I could give, like, cut, cut him some slack over the idea that maybe because he was getting this linoleum, he didn't have enough extra hands to get the TV set. 
but he had his wife there and he had this kid, Brian Ned. So I think they would have been able to handle taking a TV set home as well. Yeah, I think between, you know, go and put the linoleum in the back of your vehicle and then get Brian Ned to help you. And even if it is a giant clunky TV from the 70s between three people, and then you could also get Tommy Ziegler to help. So, yeah, I just don't get why on Christmas Eve, there's a reason to then come back to the store yet again. I agree, Ashley. It's one of those things that just doesn't line up for me. Brian Ned is mentioned during the first several pages of Fatal Flaw, but even though the book offers a rebuttal for most of the evidence against Ziegler, it doesn't have an explanation for Ned's testimony, which seems pretty strange. Why would this kid have any motivation to lie? Well, the only other mention of Ned in the book is a brief description of him getting into a shoving match with one of the investigators on Ziegler's defense team, but unfortunately, it doesn't provide any explanation for this altercation. However, the book makes it very clear that the majority of Winter Garden's Black community thought Ziegler was guilty from the outset and felt betrayed by the fact that he had befriended Charlie Mays and decided to murder him. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. So it's potential that Brian Ned testified to something that might actually uh, condemn Tommy in, in an effort to say like, look, I'm mad at this guy. This is, you know, I want to make sure that I provide some kind of evidence that would make him guilty because we all believe that he is guilty of killing our friend, Charlie Mays. But again, he doesn't seem like a very important figure in the story. And yet if that's true, right, if Ziegler's helping set up this after hours meeting, then it's a problem. Who is this kid, though? Do we know the relationship to Charlie Mays and his wife, how they're connected, Robin? It's kind of weird. There isn't that much information, only that he worked on the fruit picking crew. But you have to wonder if they have a closer relationship, if he's accompanying them to the store on Christmas Eve to purchase the linoleum. So, yeah, yeah th- things are just kind of vague with this kid. Because if his wife is there as well, if you're going to invite this kid from your fruit picking crew along with you and your wife, I and it's Christmas Eve. I would think that there would be some level of closeness. So if we're to believe that, then perhaps there could be some potential motivation to lie, whether it's to protect the integrity of the reputation of Charlie Mays, whether or not for Charlie Mays or for the widow and the family, not wanting him to be painted in this negative light and perhaps believing that he was murdered and that if he did lie about this little thing, that it would condemn Tommy Ziegler, who he maybe did already believe was guilty. So I wouldn't consider it a stretch to think that an impressionable 16-year-old kid like Brian Ned might decide to lie about overhearing a conversation in order to strengthen the case against Ziegler, like I just said. Now, we really don't know much about Ned or his character, as Robin just said, but here's one possible explanation for why he might lie about what he heard. 
Maybe Ned didn't deliberately lie and just misunderstood what he heard. Maybe Ziegler and Mays did discuss picking up a TV set at a later time without specifically saying that they would do it that very night. However, we cannot forget that Winter Garden was still a pretty segregated town back then, so I wouldn't put it past the police to pressure a young black kid into embellishing his story a little bit so it would make Ziegler look more guilty. I remember specifically asking Lynn Marie Cardi about Brian Ned, and she pretty much said this was a town where if the police told a black person to say or do something during this time period, they would comply without hesitation. I could see that. I could see there being a lot of pressure on any of the witnesses. And we've heard from a lot of the witnesses that there was kind of this idea of we're going to say potentially that there's a slug when there wasn't one, that you should say that you picked out Tommy Ziegler, even if you didn't. And then I could see having this really young kid and the fact that he's black in a segregated town and they say, hey, you need to you need to say that you heard this fact. I could easily see a young kid say, yep, I'll say whatever you want so I can stay on the good side of the law. It's also worth noting that in 1982, a retired law enforcement officer named Ed Rowe claimed that Charlie May's son, Ernie, told him that his father had a gun on him when he left their home on Christmas Eve while telling his family that there would be money for Christmas. Ernie then allegedly said, quote, my father wasn't supposed to die that night. Tommy Ziegler was supposed to die, end quote. Of course, Ernie denied this conversation ever took place, but Ed Rowe signed an affidavit to back up his statement. Wow. So he supposedly told this to one of the detectives. Uh, I think it was the uh, defense investigators. I don't think that Ed Rowe came forward with this story until 1982, which is after the trial took place. But he did sign an affidavit to the defense team to say that I heard Ernie say this. Wow. Which would have said Charlie was behind part of the killing. That's a very powerful statement. And it's, of course, you would recant that because you don't want to cast your your dad in a bad light. But the fact that, that that was signed for the defense, very, very moving statement. But there's also been another interesting story in recent years provided by Edward Williams's landlady, Mary Wallace, whom, as you recall, was the same woman who confirmed that Robert Foster and Charlie Mays knew each other. Wallace is also a retired police dispatcher, and her husband worked for the Winter Garn Recreation Department in 1975. According to Wallace, a few days after the murders, her husband and another employee from the department were asked to remove a corn plant from the furniture store and deliver it to Chief Don Fickey. Both men claimed they saw a bloody gun inside the corn plant, but after it was delivered to Fickey, no one ever saw this weapon again. Aside from the two unregistered weapons purchased from Frank Smith, all the guns found at the murder scene belonged to Tommy Ziegler. So if Charlie Mays brought a gun to the store, what happened to it? Well, Ziegler's supporters speculate that this mysterious bloody gun in the corn plant might have belonged to Mays. Well, what the heck would Ficky want with that? And if they found the gun, why did they take it? I guess they took it to the police chief and they assumed he would do the right thing with it. But they just said, hey, pick up that plant that has a gun in it and let's go take it to the police chief. I don't think they specifically mentioned the gun. Uh, I think they were hoping maybe that they wouldn't notice it, but just say, take this plant out of the store, give it to the police chief. And remember, Tommy was planning to give Ficky a plant that night on Christmas Eve as a present. So maybe this was the same plant, but and maybe for all we know, maybe when Ficky received it, he wasn't expecting to see this bloody gun there and was taken by complete surprise. But these men swore that they saw it, but nobody ever heard from it again. So it could have been left there by mistake and was missed by the original investigators. This wow. raises so many questions about Ficky, if it is indeed true, right? Like, why wasn't this tested forensically? Why wasn't this introduced as evidence? Why wasn't this 
documented in any meaningful way. As Ashley always says, take proper notes, document your evidence. (laughs) Why was this not done if this gun does indeed exist? But what I'm curious about is we know that 28 shots were fired. Did they do ballistics on all of these guns and trace the bullets back to all of the guns found at the scene? Or was there any mysterious missing gun? Uh, I can't, I, I have to double check that. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I don't know if they matched every single bullet, to every single gun, or if they even found every single bullet, but, uh, you never know. It's like by this point, when they discovered this mysterious gun in the plant, I think this was after Tommy had already been charged with the murder. So they already have this narrative push forward about him using five guns to fire 28 shots. So for all we know, they could have fudged the reports a bit Mm. and maybe uh, to further their theory that Tommy did this. Maybe at this point, Thickey had already ended his friendship with Tommy Ziegler, siding on the Tommy Ziegler is guilty. So at that point, what do you do? Recant that and be like, sorry, Tommy, I got it wrong, man. Or do you just keep going forward with that narrative that everybody else wants you to push forward? It's certainly possible. I mean, I I think he felt genuinely betrayed when he found out that one of his best friends had committed these murders. But it's hard to know if he like deliberately fabricated evidence to support that narrative. And I think we see this a lot with any story. It doesn't have to be a true crime story. It can be gossip amongst friends or whatever. But I always describe it as like when the train leaves the station, right, whether the right story is on that train or not, once it leaves the station, It becomes almost impossible to convince anybody that the real story that's left on the platform is real. Do you know what I mean? Like people just get on board that train and they say like, oh, keep telling me more details. And everybody kind of spins it further and further down the tracks. And so the truth almost becomes this. You can't get back to it. You can't grab onto the truth anymore because it's left so long ago. So that could also be what happened here. Like basically, we're so far down the tracks that I'm never going to look back and, and give you the benefit of the doubt. And look for any eggs that might say that you're innocent. Do you know what I mean? Oh, totally. Oh, yeah, exactly. But here's the big thing which bothers Robin and I about the state's assertion that Ziegler set up Mays to take the fall for his murders. So at the end of Fatal Flaw, Philip Finch lists a ton of things which don't make sense about Ziegler's murder plot. But there was one unanswered question which really stuck out to me. What was Tommy Ziegler's plan if Charlie Mays hadn't shown up at the store that morning? The prosecution gave off the impression that Tommy was a diabolical individual who planned this elaborate murder plot well in advance, which is why he ordered those untraceable guns six months beforehand. Oh, that's so true. And then you're telling me that about 12 hours before the murders, even less, he says, ah, this guy, this is the one that I'm going to actually pin all of this on when he shows up at his store that morning. Yeah, this is kind of my big aha moment. I remember when I read that book. Because Tommy had originally made arrangements for Edward Williams to accompany him to the store on December the 22nd. So you have to assume that by this point, he had already concocted his plan to murder his wife and in-laws at the store on Christmas Eve and frame Williams for the crime. Yet for the next two days, there is no indication that Tommy ever approached Charlie Mays or anyone else to meet him at the store on Christmas Eve. So if you believe the state's version, when May showed up at the store on the morning of the 24th to purchase some linoleum, Tommy got the spontaneous idea, hey, maybe I'll set him up for the murders too. And then then decided to invite Mays to the store that night under the guise of giving him a TV set so he could kill him. Yeah, that seems like a huge stretch. If If you really believe the idea that he has carefully planned so many things, he has this great idea to take people out to an orange field, get their fingerprints on a gun, 
um, it jams. So he just gives the gun to somebody else. So his fingerprints can be on it. And all of a sudden, it's just that one freak moment this morning that I had this idea. Charlie Mays, that's my guy. I mean, I guess if you're to believe that he's this like dog leg cutting psychopath that tries to drown his father, then sure, you could believe he'd be cold enough to try to set this up. But it's too hard for me to fathom that he did this 24 hours prior when they're basically resting their laurels on that he planned this so far in advance. And from all accounts, like he spent the entire day working at the furniture store. And I think they closed at around 6 p.m. And the murders took place between 7.20 and 7.30. So he would not have had any other time to search out and find another patsy that he could frame for the crime. I mean, if Charlie Mays didn't show up, was he just going to pick out the next customer who came walking in through the door? <laughs> it just uh, seems like he said he left way too much to chance. Considering that one of the most important elements of Tommy's plan was getting Mays to fire off the murder weapons at the Orange Grove, it's quite strange that he'd wait until the last minute to find himself a patsy, as Robin just said. So was he really planning to pin the entire crime on Edward Williams alone? And while we're on the subject of Williams, why would Tommy ask him to meet him at his house at 7.30, the exact same time he arranged to meet Mays at the store? How would his plan work if Williams didn't have the patience to wait around at his house for nearly an hour and just decided to bail on him? It just seems crazy that Tommy could orchestrate this elaborate murder plot and leave so many things to chance. It seems like this plan of his required pitch-perfect timing when so many things could have gone wrong. The state even theorized that the reason Tommy offered to switch cars with Curtis Dunaway was because he'd have to travel back and forth a lot that night and there would be less risk of him being recognized if he drove someone else's vehicle. Fair enough but that doesn't change the fact that Dunaway's Oldsmobile was having car trouble at the time, which is why Curtis feared it might break down when he drove to Orlando to visit his family for Christmas. This means that Tommy took a huge risk by borrowing it. If the car broke down while Tommy was in the midst of carrying out his murders, his entire plan was ruined. Right, so we'd go get some other totally random car or ask someone to drive me around at that point because I'm either going to use my own car in a murder plot and people are going to recognize me in our small town or I'm going to take this car that's having mechanical problems and trust that as I make all these crazy adventures in sometimes what we know in the timeline ends up being supposedly like a seven minute stint here and there that it's going to break down on you and then you're stuck and you won't be able to get back to the shop. So neither makes sense driving his own car or Curtis's car. We've got organized Tommy Ziegler who plans everything to the letter except finding a patsy, which he does just right before the crime. And then he also last minute wouldn't have known that Curtis Dunaway was going to be giving him the car. Right, Robin? Like this was like a last minute thing that he kind of offered. I think it was literally when the store closed, like around 5.30, 6 o'clock. Like there's oh no God. way he should have anticipated it so far in advance. It just makes him sound like he made the spontaneous decision. Hey, maybe I should use another car because I can drive around town back and forth and people will have a harder time recognizing me. Don't forget that he let two people get away too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 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 So one of the biggest issues with believing that Charlie Mays was an innocent victim was when DNA testing revealed the presence of Perry Edwards' blood on his pants. As we have mentioned earlier, their bodies were found 15 yards apart from one another, and there weren't any bloody footprints between them. So I don't see how that blood could have wound up on Mays' pants if their paths hadn't crossed at some point. And we keep bringing this up because I feel like it is such an important point. And of course, that goes completely against the state's assertion 
that Perry was murdered before Mays even entered the store. You're right, because the timing here is really important. Had Mays actually been in the store when Perry was being murdered, you could explain away blood splatter and bodily contents and things like that on his pants. But the fact that Mays supposedly didn't enter the store until Perry was already murdered really causes a problem when you say there's blood from Perry on May's pants and May's is 15 yards away. There just isn't a explanation that says how blood from a deceased individual would be all over somebody else who's deceased 15 yards away. I agree. I just don't think that there's any possible way. And I think it is one, like we keep harping on this and I know everybody listening is like, you guys keep talking about the pants, but I think it is such an important point. He can't be inside and outside at the same time. Like both things cannot be true. So the fact that that blood is indeed on his pants seems that he must have had a participatory role in what happened at the furniture store. I think it's just a shame that uh, this took place in 1975, because if this crime happened today, they would have been able to perform DNA tests and discover this right away. And the case would have fallen apart. But because they didn't find this out until 30 years after the fact, it's still not strong enough to overturn the conviction. Wow. So I think I pretty much established that I do not believe the state's version of events, which happened that night. But does that mean Tommy Ziegler is innocent? Well, it is possible that he could still be guilty, but the actual murder plot was far less convoluted. One other theory is that Tommy could have hired Edward Williams, Charlie Mays, Felton Thomas, or some others to meet him at the store and murder Eunice and his in-laws. After they complete the job, Tommy decides to double-cross his accomplices by shooting them inside the store and placing all the blame on them. However, Tommy only succeeds at killing Mays before the others shoot him and escape. This just seems really odd. Again, Tommy's not a dumb guy. And the only person he would, quote, need to kill is Eunice. And so by asking three or four men to come into the store and kill his entire family and then also try to kill three or four more people himself, it seems like a a plan so far-fetched that nobody would really say, hey, I'm going to do this and get away with it. I think to myself that if someone wanted to hire someone to murder their wife and their in-laws, like do it when you're at another location and you establish an alibi for yourself. There's no reason to participate in the murders with these people you've hired all together because then uh, they can testify against you uh, if they get away. Yeah. And and maybe die because. Yeah, that's you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So again, I can't help thinking of the usual suspects. I mean, there's a lot of holes in that theory, and I just don't necessarily believe it because of everything that Robin and Ashley just said. But I think it says a lot about the state's case that this particular version somehow seems a bit more plausible. Even if there was some truth to this theory, the state needed the testimony of Williams and Thomas to make their case. So there was no way they could present a scenario where either of them were willing participants in the murders. So if Tommy was a completely innocent victim, then who was responsible for these murders? Oh, there's a whole crew of people that could be responsible. And each seems to be connected to somebody else. It's like the seven, you know, the seven realms of Kevin Bacon are are all related to each other. (laughs) Six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Sure, that. Seven realms. That's like a new world you get to enter at the seven. I like your version better. Thank you. It's a little bit more sexy. But yeah, the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, right? Is that it's like, well, I kept asking, well, does this person know this person? Well, yeah, this landlord says this person knows this person. So it does seem as if that entire little crew could have definitely planned something. But Tommy doesn't seem to have 
a tie to them, except for the fact that he's been a great ally to the African-American community in, in the city. So I don't know. I have no idea who's responsible. I need Charlie Mays here to tell us what happened. I think a great title would be The Six Degrees of Robert Foster, the, the oh, magical, yes! mysterious guy who has a tie to everything. Or The Seventh <laughs> Realm of Robert Foster. Yeah. That would be, yeah, be more intriguing. Yeah. This reminds me of like the seven circles of hell, right? <laughs> they say the seven yeah. circles of hell for Tommy Ziegler. Yeah, exactly. Well, as we mentioned earlier, the big theory Ziegler supporters have pushed forward in recent years is that Perry Edwards Jr. was the mastermind behind the whole thing. Now, I got to admit, I found it a bit troubling that they never pushed this theory until after Perry Jr. died in 2013. It seems awfully convenient that they started pointing fingers at the guy when he was no longer around to defend himself. But in fairness, I was assured by Lynn Marie Cardi that she uncovered troubling information about him right before his death. And there were plans to go public with these suspicions. But it was just an unfortunate coincidence that he suffered a fatal heart attack. This is a really tough position to be in because like we said in another episode that when you start questioning the intimate family members, you know, the immediate family members of the deceased individuals, if you're wrong and that person's innocent, the layer of trauma and the burden you place on them to not only grieve these multiple deaths, but then to also have to fight off the, the suspicion that they're the murderer, that is such a difficult journey for that individual. But unfortunately for Perry Jr., he opens himself up to a lot of speculation and suspicion because he has a pattern of being abusive, of being aggressive, of having a reason in this case to actually kill his family. Whereas Tommy had a reason to kill Eunice if he was after her life insurance, Junior had a reason to kill all of them because he was going to lose $3.3 million or at least his share of $3.3 million when he got written out of the will. So to me, it really is Junior that has the biggest motivation in this case to eliminate all three family members. And the fact that he didn't show up to his sister's funeral, I don't care what beef you guys had, but after mom, dad, and your sister are killed, you need to show up and not be chasing the life insurance money or the will at that that same day. Yeah, that's the thing with Perry Jr. is that even if you accuse him, uh, it sounds like his own family doesn't even like him and stuff. So it's not like he is like a model <laughs> citizen, a completely innocent victim, because it sounds like even if he wasn't involved in the murders, he was involved in violence and abuse towards his own family. The person who first pointed Investigator Cardi in the direction of Perry Edwards Jr. was a Georgia sheriff's deputy named Gene Jones. As his son, Chris just happened to be the husband of Perry Jr.'s granddaughter, Nicole. So Perry Jr. threatened to kill Chris and Deputy Jones always thought there was something off about the guy, which is what compelled him to get in touch with Lynn Marie. According to Nicole, she actually told her grandfather he was being investigated for his potential involvement in the murders. And shortly thereafter, she saw him burning some papers in a fire barrel. A short time later, he died of a heart attack. Oh my goodness, poor Nicole. Isn't she the same one that supposedly was told she was going to get this ring from her deceased aunt? Yes, she is. I've seen her interviewed on that documentary, A Question of Innocence, and she really does not like her grandfather that much. And she seems like a very credible, level-headed person. And so does her husband, Chris. So I 100% believe them when they say all these bad things about Perry Jr. Yeah, and then why are you going to kill us? Because we know too much. It's very, very suspicious. Like I said, he was hiding that ring that potentially could have been the one removed from Eunice's body. He's burning fire or he's burning fire. He's burning papers in a fire barrel after they kind of call him out. 
And shortly later, he dies of a heart attack. Could it be the stress of knowing too much or having been involved? Who knows? But I, I tend to like Nicole. She seems to really be this person that's like, look, family or not, this guy is not a good human being. Another story that Chris provided is that he found out about this investigation into the murders. And there was another incident where Perry Jr. threatened him and he flat out said to him, oh, are you going to kill me like you murdered your sister and your parents? And apparently Perry Jr. just like froze. Perry Jr. just like froze when he heard that. I think that was one of the first times he learned that he was being reinvestigated. And uh, I I agree. It could have been stress, which caused him to die of a heart attack a short time later. I mean, he goes and he he basically inherits three point three million dollars that maybe even if he waited a few more days, he wouldn't have inherited because that will was there for Tommy Ziegler to sign. He hadn't signed it yet. So there could have been that motivation for, you know, Perry Edwards Jr. to act now. I will say that the theory about Perry Jr. orchestrating this whole thing is very compelling and makes sense on the surface. But there was one unanswered question which initially prevented me from getting fully behind it. Did Perry Jr. know that his family were going to be in the furniture store that night? So remember, Eunice brought her parents to the store after closing because she and Tommy were going to provide them with a recliner. I can't be sure, but you'd assume this was a Christmas surprise and that Perry Sr. and Virginia wouldn't have known about it when they left their home in Moultrie. So did anyone from the Edwards family tell Perry Jr. this was going to happen? If not, how could Perry Jr. have arranged this whole thing? Now, do you think that Perry Sr. and Virginia knew when they got, like when they were on their way to the furniture store? Or do we think the surprise was, hey, come to the furniture store and then we'll reveal your big gift? Because I'm wondering if they called Perry Jr. to check in and just said, oh, yeah, you know, see, that would be too short of a notice, probably. But I was going to say, maybe they called him and said, hey, we're getting a new recliner. We're going to go pick it up on Christmas Eve at the store. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I mean, it's possible. I think it was just a surprise. But the question is, is that they were in such bad terms with Perry Jr. Like, would they even bother calling him and letting them know? Because remember, they were going to take their granddaughter to uh, Winter Garden with them. But Perry Jr. was going to stay behind, which is a bad sign that he's not spending Christmas with his parents, even though his daughter is. So that's what I'm thinking is that would they have told him about their Christmas plans? That's very true. And if they had known about the little surprise, it probably would have been only right before the holiday. So they might not have he might not have had time to get down to to the furniture store in that short notice. But maybe he was already there and he was stalking the whole scene and he was kind of keeping a close eye. Right. Could have been. Yeah, certainly possible. I mean, these murders took place after the store was closed. So there would be no reason for Perry Jr. to think his family would be there at that time. 
for Perry Jr. to orchestrate this murder plot and recruit a bunch of accomplices, he need to have advanced knowledge of his family's whereabouts in order to make it work. And the connection between Perry Jr. and Charlie Mays and Robert Foster does seem very, very tenuous to me. Just because they all love to play softball is not evidence that they actually knew each other. That's true. I do wonder, though, we have a lot of cars floating around and a lot of people who are mysteriously at different places at different times. It is possible that Perry Jr. was stalking them and this group was kind of playing catch up, trying to find these people that night. Yeah, I think so. Like it could have been a different plan to like maybe kill them at an earlier point in the day. But then they saw they're in this dark furniture store together after closing. Maybe this is our best opportunity. Yeah, like it could have potentially been originally this idea for maybe a home invasion gone wrong. And that's why the granddaughter wasn't invited. It just seems unlikely that they would have known beforehand that this was going to be the place to commit the murders. Because how do you get all of these individuals at the furniture store at the same time? Harry Edwards Jr. just couldn't have known that that would have been a situation. But maybe he just improvised and kind of was like, okay, they're all there. Maybe this is a good idea. Robbery gone wrong. So Nicole's story about her nanny allegedly having possession of Eunice's family ring is pretty interesting, especially since the ring was not found on her after she was killed. One possible explanation is that there might have been some sort of clerical error and that the police gave the ring back to Perry Jr. without making a record of it, which would make sense since he was next of kin. However, Eunice was still wearing her wedding ring when she was found and it was taped to her finger when her body was moved to prevent it from getting lost. If Eunice had been wearing her family ring, the same should have happened. So it seemed pretty certain that this ring was taken from her before the police arrived. If they did it with one ring, you would think they would definitely do it with the other ring, right? It's hard to to say, oh, it's just kind of a clerical error. or It's a mistake when one ring is properly handled and another one is not. Exactly. And uh, you can't get a really good look, but from the crime scene photos, they're kind of shot from a distance. It really looks like that uh, Eunice is only wearing one ring at that time and that the family ring is missing. It makes me question if it was Perry Edwards Jr., because if it was one of the other individuals, what would make them leave behind the wedding ring? If you're only going to take one ring, it would be that ring that has some kind of significance to you personally. So it would look like there could be some potential that he would have been the person over the body taking that ring. Because if it was any of the other people, I would believe that they would take both rings. Yeah, if it was a robbery, if that was the primary motive, there's no reason to leave the wedding ring behind. But the fact that the family ring was missing uh, suggests something a lot more personal. I will say that Lynn Marie Cardi did address a lot of my misgivings about the theory that Perry Jr. was responsible. She suspects that Perry Jr.'s original plan was not to murder his family inside the furniture store after closing. It just sort of happened that way. It's possible the murders were actually supposed to take place at the Ziegler home earlier in the day. On Christmas Eve, there were numerous sightings of a dark blue car driving up and down the street in the Ziegler's neighborhood throughout the day. If these were the killers... They very well could have followed Eunice and her parents from their home to the furniture store after closing and used that as the ideal opportunity to kill them. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that dark blue car sounds very familiar to the car that was supposedly spotted near those, you know, attempted robberies gone wrong, right? Or averted robberies. And there was also the neighbor, Edward Reeves, who said he saw a dark blue car in the driveway between 8 and 840. So that's so true. It keeps popping up at various points throughout the day. It's hard not to attach any significance to that dark colored car when it does keep seeping into the story at these different intervals. So when Tommy showed up at the store shortly thereafter, they shot him too. 
but whether by design or pure luck, he wound up taking the rap for the murders. The thing about the dark blue car that Robin just described is that it just seems, like we said, to be at all of these different intervals through the story. It just keeps popping up. A vehicle matching that description was seen parked in front of the furniture store that night by numerous witnesses, including Ken and Linda Roach, whom, as you'll recall, saw four vehicles outside the store when there theoretically should have only been two. This car also seems to match the description of the vehicle Edward Reeves saw parked in the Ziegler's driveway between 8 and 8.40. It would also match the description of the vehicle the black males used to speed away from the TG&Y store during the averted armed robbery incident. And I use air quotes for that because it seems like it could have been a misinterpretation. That's true. It could have been a misinterpretation, but that blue car is a very important piece of evidence to at least explore. Who was it? Who was driving that car? Remember, they told Edward Reeves, the neighbor, not to mention it. So the fact that we know it plays a significant role that day um, around the Ziegler's home and furniture store and that it's being kind of suppressed or kind of ignored is very, very problematic in this case. Oh, yeah. I just mean that it was misinterpreted in the sense that they weren't trying to rob the police officer like the witnesses had originally said. But this blue car, this dark vehicle has an extreme amount of significance. Yeah, absolutely. No matter what they were doing across the street, it was there. And a lot of witnesses saw it. So they imagine what would have happened had they investigated and looked into that car and not told the witnesses to kind of keep that information to themselves. Well, I hate to say this, but I'm, I'm about to provide some additional complications to this case as oh, if we no. didn't have enough. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, shortly after Tommy was arrested, a black man named Nathaniel Brown contacted Tommy's parents with a shocking piece of information. Brown claimed that an unknown white man had paid $1,000 each to a group of black males to commit some murders, and two of these black men were named Don and Jerry. While Robert Foster was known for using a number of aliases during his criminal career, one of which was Jerry Freeman, Brown also specifically mentioned Charlie Mays' name and said he was planning to steal a TV set when he visited the furniture store that night. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. So Nathaniel Brown basically confirms the fact that possibly Junior hires this team of men driving that dark blue car to kill this family. And what happened with this information? Nothing? Well, there's some additional strange details, which Jules is about to share. Ah, Jules! (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay, so the strange thing about Brown's story is that he claimed the murders were part of a revenge plot orchestrated by this white man against Tommy's father, Thomas Ziegler Sr., and that one of the reasons was because Mr. Ziegler had bested him on some property deals. Even though these people shot Tommy, Brown believed that they never intended to kill him and wanted to frame him for the crime so that his parents would have to suffer the indignity of seeing their son get convicted of murder. Brown claimed he was a member of the NAACP, and came forward because of Tommy Ziegler's reputation for being supportive of the Black community. My God. So you're telling me that because uh, you bested me on some property deals, or you bought some property out from underneath me, I'm going to kill family members, shoot your son, and then frame him for murder so you could suffer the same way you suffered from losing some property? This is very weird. But Brown is basically saying, look, I'm a member of the NAACP, And I I appreciate Tommy's support of the Black community. So I want to tell you what I know. 
that's what it seems. It just seems like this guy came completely out of nowhere and decided to share this information because he respected Tommy Ziegler. But it, it's just so out of left field that it, it just so bizarre that it's like it doesn't seem to fit with anything else. But it might. It, it does seem to fit. It, does. it <laughs> does. Look at Judge Maurice Paul with his potential vendetta and revenge thing that he had with the whole thing that maybe he was bested in court. We've got a whole situation that almost parallels that here. Where this person's basically what, like lying in wait in beast mode, just waiting for the right moment to exact their revenge so that the parents have to suffer this indignity. It all sounds so bizarre, but everything in this case sounds really bizarre. Well, this information was turned over to the police, and I know this is going to come as a complete shocker, but Don Fry dismissed it. <laughs> My God. No. <laughs> never yeah, surprise, surprise. <laughs> he said that Brown was nothing more than a criminal and an habitual liar. But in spite of this, defense investigators attempted to find Brown so he could testify at trial, but they were told he had been killed in a shootout in New York. Well, guess what? Reports of Brown's death were greatly exaggerated. Lynn Marie Cardi was able to uncover a death certificate for Nathaniel Brown, and it turned out he actually died in Florida in July of 2006. Again, why would you dismiss his story? I don't understand. Yeah, maybe he has a criminal record or maybe he's a quote habitual liar. But this is another story that Don Fry and investigators could have followed until it ran into a dead end or until it proved to not be true. And then how weird about the reports of his death? Like, why make it this huge dramatic story only to find out that he really just died in Florida in July 2006. It's very yeah. similar to the Robert Foster story where they pretend, oh, he's dead or he doesn't actually exist. And then decades later, you're having Lynn Marie Cardi find out that, oh, he's actually alive or he actually died 30 years after they said he did. <laughs> so weird. So coming back to Brown's story, it's pretty unusual as there's zero indications that these murders were a revenge scheme against Tommy's father. But one detail which added credibility to the story was his claim that all the guns used in the murders had been wiped clean, as this info was not known until weeks after Brown mentioned it. Well, investigator Cardi believes that Brown was actually telling the truth, but some of the details got lost in translation. It's possible that Brown might have actually said the words, it's a revenge scheme against the father, and everyone incorrectly assumed the father was Thomas Ziegler Sr. But what if the father was actually Perry <gasps> Edwards Sr.? Oh my goodness. What if it was? <laughs> what right? if it was? That makes a lot of sense because Perry Edwards Sr. was about to take Junior out of the will which would have been besting him on some property, right? Or excluding him from some property. So that's very possible that we had a little bit of a telephone game where the details got lost in translation. So when Brown said that the father had bested the mastermind of this plot on some property deals, this could be interpreted as him besting his own son. Because if Perry Sr. cut Perry Edwards Jr. out of his will, then he would no longer be able to inherit his family's farmland. Since Brown is now dead, we'll probably never know how he learned any of this information to begin with. But it sounds like he might have heard the story third hand and gotten some details mixed up. Because some of his inaccurate statements still have an element of truth to them. For instance, he claimed that one of the black men, Jerry, had a glass eye, which doesn't apply to any of the known suspects. However, 
Court transcripts show that Mary Ellen Stewart, the same witness who testified to arranging the purchase of untraceable guns between Tommy and Frank Smith, mentioned that she only had one eye. Brown also claimed that Jerry had taken a bullet wound to his right shoulder and was currently recovering in Oakland. And while this detail doesn't seem to apply to Robert Foster or any of the other suspects, there's an element of truth to this as well. What do you mean? How's, how is there an element of truth to that? Well, I've got another additional complication we got to talk about right now. Oh, no, you guys. <laughs> yeah, but it starts to place everything together, just like the Nathaniel Brown story. But uh, remember how Tommy claims that when he was attacked in the furniture store, he pulled out his 22 to defend himself, but the gun jammed? Well, Tommy did manage to get one shot off before his weapon jammed and was knocked from his hands. What if this shot actually ended up wounding someone? Ooh, because he was hit in the back of the head by somebody, right? So he wouldn't have necessarily known who that individual was. Exactly. Yeah, and it's possible that he shot and accidentally, or purposely, I guess, hit somebody, but somebody that he doesn't recall being at the scene. Yeah, and we've got that, you know, doctors corroborating the fact he did have a goose egg on the back of his head. So possible, right? So Tommy did admit that he grabbed a 357 Magnum from his desk and fired off a couple shots in self-defense. If Charlie Mays was one of the attackers, it's possible he was hit with these shots, but none of them were 22 caliber bullets. In fact, even though an empty 22 casing was found at the scene, no 22 caliber bullets were recovered at all. This made the defense suspect that Tommy did manage to wound another attacker besides Mays and this person left the store alive with a 22 bullet still inside of them. This is fascinating. This is so fascinating. It's very possible. I mean, we don't know who was there and who wasn't there. And so the fact that there's a mysterious person that could have been shot and there's no bullet that, you know, no 22 bullet that's recovered. I mean, who knows who has that lodged in their arm somewhere? Well, I'm about to tell you a potential no! person. <laughs> <Yes>! <laughs> yeah, All right, and- tell me. This is another wild character in the story as if we didn't have enough already, but I have to introduce something else new in in the third (laughs) act. (laughs) Well, Gene Jones, the same sheriff's deputy from Georgia who directed Lynn Marie Carty towards Perry Edwards Jr., he has his own theory about who this attacker might be. Remember when Felton Thomas recounted his first meeting with Tommy Ziegler outside the furniture store? He described Tommy as driving up to the scene in a light-colored Cadillac, even though Tommy never drove such a vehicle. Deputy Jones believes that Thomas may have been describing an altogether different guy, a career criminal named Edward Lee Bryan, who went by the nickname Slim. Slim had a reputation for being a drug-dealing hitman and just happened to hang out at the same bar in Georgia, which Perry Edwards Jr. liked to frequent. And Slim was also known to drive a car, which resembled a light-colored Cadillac. Slim. Oh, Slim. Edward Lee Bryan. And Perry Edwards Jr. is caught up with this, too. Do we know if there's any kind of weight to this or they, they've dismissed this as well? Well, they've never conclusively linked a Slim to this crime, but there is some compelling circumstantial evidence that he could have been involved. There was another strange discrepancy in Thomas's trial testimony, which was not picked up on by the defense, and no one even noticed it until they read the transcripts later on. At one point, while describing his encounter with Ziegler, Thomas stated, quote, I ain't paying too much attention because he was on the truck when everybody was trying to get their equipment sharpened there, end quote. This is a very odd statement because Thomas claimed that he never met Ziegler before he showed up at the furniture store. 
but now he's implying that he met him at an earlier time. And why would Tommy be sharpening equipment? This is so bizarre. Yeah. Why would you lie about having met him before and then accidentally slip and say, yeah, I actually have met him? What equipment is he sharpening? I'm just not understanding what you do at a furniture store and why equipment needs to be sharpened on Christmas Eve. It's like this guy you've never met before. You say you've never met him, but you know he's sharpening equipment, which doesn't fit his profile at all. So it's kind of a shame the defense didn't really notice that until after the trial, because I think they could have really damaged his credibility if they tried to question him further on this. The defense really had their work cut out for them, though. So much seemed to be held back from them. And then there's all these mysterious disappearing characters. And (laughs) if this story took place today, I think it would be a lot different because you could track these people a lot easier. But, you know, like you'd mentioned, Robin, you've got all these disappearing people where it's like, oh, typographical error. This guy's dead. But then it turns out later to not be the case. So, yeah, I think they really did have their work cut out for them. Like, what a difficult job trying to defend Tommy Ziegler when clearly everyone seems to be working against you. The police and, you know, the district attorney or whomever are potentially holding back things. Well, they're absolutely holding back some things, but we don't know how much they're actually holding back because there could be some things that just haven't even come to light. So here's where the Slim guy ties into the whole thing again. Slim actually ran a tool sharpening business for migrant workers who worked in the fields, which he would use as a cover to sell them drugs. And as you might recall, Felton Thomas worked as a migrant worker. During her interview with Thomas in 2013, Lynn Marie Cardi showed him a photograph of Slim. And much like when she showed him the photo of Perry Jr., Thomas appeared to become visibly agitated. But here's the real interesting part. Jean Jones claimed that around the same time as the murders, rumors circulated that Slim got shot in the right shoulder with a 22. And Jones said he got the story directly from Slim's uncle, who was a prominent law enforcement officer at the time. What the heck? <laughs> he was shot in the right shoulder with the 22. So how easy would it be to go find Slim and see if there's a like a scar on his on his shoulder? Well, that's the big mystery in this case is I had no idea if Slim is even still alive today or if he could even be tracked down. And I know that Lynn Marie Cardi has never found him and spoken with him personally. She found Robert Foster, but Slim is still an enigma. We do know this guy exists, but he has never really been investigated or questioned in conjunction with this case. It seems like you could easily just say like, hey, man. You got to show me your shoulder. And then there's a bullet hole there and you go, (laughs) holy crap, (laughs) we've got a problem. Well, the official story which was presented was that Slim sustained this gunshot wound after a fight with a black guy named Bear. Yet Slim didn't seem to worry too much about pressing charges against this guy or getting payback. Now, as you remember, Nathaniel Brown claimed that a black guy involved in the murders was shot in the shoulder. But what if he got that detail mixed up? If Perry Edwards Jr. was friends with Slim, Could he have entrusted him to help with his murder plot? Was Slim at the furniture store when the murders took place? Was Slim the white man that Felton Thomas interacted with that night? Did Tommy Ziegler fire a shot into Slim's shoulder? And remember, there was that couple that said they saw the white person in the store. And so that could have also been Slim, too. Who knows? From far away. So, yes, my answer is yes, yes, yes. Isn't Slim black? No, Slim is white. Oh, Slim (laughs) is white. Okay, so this makes sense. So we've got multiple people where it could be either Tommy Ziegler, Slim, or it could be Harry Edwards Jr. So we've got 
three multiple white men whom those witnesses could have identified as being there. But also, I love that he supposedly got shot in the shoulder by a man named Bear. I've got to love a guy named Bear. Yeah, you don't mess with him. No, (laughs) definitely not. Another funny detail is that Michael Clark Duncan, who we referenced earlier, he played a character in Armageddon named Bear. So oh, he did. Uh, he, but he was so lovable too. He's always a teddy bear. He really. So is. I don't know that this. Yeah, I don't know that this guy's street name would have been Teddy Bear. But if it's just Bear, I wouldn't mess with you. <laughs> Maybe it was like Grizzly Bear. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're just waiting for us to come up with a definitive concrete theory which explains what actually happened at the W.T. Ziegler Furniture Store on Christmas Eve in 1975. Well, I'm sorry to say, I don't think that we can do it. The whole situation is such a ridiculous, convoluted mess. And with all the evidence we have to work with, it's impossible to come up with a theory supporting Tommy Ziegler's innocence or guilt, which doesn't have a bunch of holes. Now, to be honest, when I released my Trail What Cold episodes nearly five years ago, I spent about a month researching and preparing them, and I probably went back and forth and changed my mind about Tommy several times. But in the end, I ultimately landed on innocent. There is just too much about this case which doesn't make sense and enough strange coincidences and questionable actions from law enforcement to make me feel comfortable about Tommy's guilt. However, I've had numerous discussions about this case over the years and spoken to some people who still believe Tommy was guilty and they do make valid points to back up their arguments. After all, this was a segregated town in the South in which the police took the word of some African-American witnesses in order to prosecute an upper-class white citizen, which certainly wasn't common during that time period. This isn't like some other wrongful conviction cases where you feel that the people on the pro-guilt side have blinders on and are ignoring crucial evidence to support their side. This case is just way too convoluted to be cut and dried. But at the same time, I also feel that there's a lot more evidence in this case supporting Tommy's innocence, which you just cannot explain away. It is one of those cases where you literally are left scratching your head. But that's a problem when you have a man on death row, right? You need to have, just to find somebody guilty, it has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. But then let's remind everybody, he's on death row. In fact, there's been a time where Tommy was about to be executed if his own attorney didn't say, I failed him. I'm a bad attorney to save his life. So it's one of those cases that is a example as to why Perhaps the death penalty is not the best method for dealing with somebody who could have done a horrific crime, right? There's definitely a need for severe consequences. But at this point, does Tommy need to be sitting on death row? I don't feel that in my gut, right? I feel like there's too many question marks in his case. And I'm the kind of person who says I would rather have 10 guilty people go free than to sentence one person innocently to death. I mean, that makes no sense, right? It's just, it's a, it's a problem. And so here I'm left just as confused as you guys and anybody who's listening, but it seems like what Tommy's currently facing isn't justice either. No, this seems like such a protracted case. And it seems because it happened in Florida. I mean, if this case happened in another state, right? Like say this happened in Oregon or something, I'm sure we would have seen another outcome. Do you know what I mean? It's just, I mean, I don't even know if Oregon has the death penalty, but pretend for a second that they do, right? I don't think that they do. Do they? I don't think they do. I don't no. think they do. No. So I'm just thinking like a state that is a little less Texas or Florida, 
right? In the <laughs> sense I was that, say, don't say Texas. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I understand why people like personally, I, I don't believe the death penalty is the right solution, but I do find it really interesting. And I understand why many Americans, especially in the Bible Belt, do support the death penalty. I Absolutely. get the biblical reference. And I think everybody's entitled to their personal opinion on the death penalty. I'm not trying to make it political, but I do happen to agree with you, Ashley, in that I'm the type of person, too, that would rather see these guilty men go free rather than seeing an innocent man convicted and, you know, put to death. Jules, Oregon does have the death penalty. Do they kill it, girl? I didn't think that they would. Yeah. So Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Nebraska, Nevada, North Carolina, Ohio, Oklahoma, Oregon, Pennsylvania. I'm almost done. Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, and Wyoming. So out of our beautiful states, 27 do have it and 23 do not. Oh, wow. I like how you said Idaho. 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 (laughs) Idaho. (laughs) No, Utah. Well, I still remember a line from the Blood and Truth podcast where they interviewed this prominent attorney. And he said, if they had just given Tommy life a life sentence like they intended back in Mm -hmm. 1975, he probably would have been shoved into the back of a prison and forgotten about to this day. But because they gave him the death penalty on such shaky evidence, People are still talking about this case 45 years later and trying to get him out of prison. And it just will not go away. Absolutely. There's a race to prove if someone is innocent when they're on death row. If it's life in prison, people do. They tend to forget about it. And, and, you know, we talk about wrongful convictions and we always think about horrific rape cases or murder cases. But think about all the drug cases and stuff where people are wrongfully convicted because they're pressured by police or things like that where we we never pay attention to those because it's like, well, that's only two years. That's only five years. And by the time you were going to prove that, you would be released anyway. So our system has huge flaws. It, it, I wouldn't want to be tried in many other countries. Um, I, I think America tries to do the best they can, but but there's a lot of flaws. And when it comes to the death penalty, there just is not room for mistakes. And we make them. And I've always maintained that even if Tommy was guilty, the state's version of events for how these events unfolded is complete bunk. Given how many questionable things the police and the prosecution did, you can tell they didn't have complete faith that they had a rock-solid case. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had bizarre stuff like Robert Foster's name appearing on official paperwork until investigators started pretending he was a non-existent person. I think they developed tunnel vision, and once they became convinced that Tommy Ziegler committed these murders, they weren't willing to explore other possibilities. When Perry Edwards Jr. served as Don Fry's confidential informant, and fed him all that info about Tommy being gay, that sealed the deal for them. And once they charged Tommy with the crime, they passed the point of no return. Even when holes started to emerge in their theory and evidence started pointing towards Tommy's innocence, they couldn't just admit they made a mistake and start over again. And that's pretty much what causes so many wrongful conviction cases. You nailed it, Robin. That's why we find ourselves in these problems in the first place, is that we're human beings. So it doesn't mean that people are maliciously making mistakes or they're purposely trying to get people convicted wrongfully. I mean, that's not how a lot of these cases work. Sometimes it is, but a lot of times it's the fact that we have a machine run by humans. And that means humans make mistakes. And we have to be willing to look in the mirror and say, as smart as I am, as professional as I am, as hard as I work, could I make a mistake? Absolutely. And you have to want to ultimately chase justice and the truth. If you lose sight of that, 
and you become fixated on being right, that's where you have a lot of problems. And that seems to be like what we have in this case. Yeah, I think people really want to stick to their paradigm. You see it in science as well. Like the earth is flat. People will stick to these ideas till the very last moment. And I think that the same thing happens with wrongful convictions. People don't want to admit that they're wrong because in admitting that you got this wrong, you're admitting that the justice system is flawed, but you're also admitting that all of these individuals who are involved in the case got it wrong. And it also could uncover many different flaws in the way that they did their jobs, the way they collected, presented evidence, things that they held back, potential Brady violations. There's so many reasons why you could see a state stick to their guns and go, nope, we got it right. It's just it's that inconvenient truth that nobody really wants to pursue. And so, like, you know, we've said throughout about Tommy Ziegler, he could have easily been hidden away had people like Lynn Marie Cardi not been involved in investigating this and have kept pushing that Tommy Ziegler is innocent. When you look at the big picture, there's way more evidence supporting Tommy Ziegler's innocence than his guilt. So was Perry Edwards Jr. the real mastermind behind this horrible crime? So in spite of our initial misgivings, it does sound like the most plausible explanation to me. His financial motive versus Tommy Ziegler seems far more significant. I agree. I think that Perry Edwards Jr. had more to lose and therefore he had more to gain. And there was a bigger reason to kill the entire family for Perry Edwards Jr. If Tommy was going to kill his wife for insurance money, there were easier ways to do it. You didn't need to do, you didn't need to, to kill the whole family. You didn't need to have this huge elaborate scheme. Perry Edwards Jr. needed something big because he was about to lose big. And his actions before and after the murder show that he wasn't a great human being. He didn't care about his family. And, you know, he had a lot of things that said, hey, the money would be more important to me than having my three family members here. And I fully concede that we cannot provide an airtight explanation about why I think Tommy Ziegler is innocent. But here's the thing. The state of Florida cannot provide an airtight explanation about why they thought Tommy Ziegler was guilty. The case they presented left way too much room for reasonable doubt. So there's no way Tommy should have been convicted, let alone sentenced to death. I really hope that the state of Florida makes no other attempts to go through with Tommy's execution because even if he did commit the murders, he's going to turn 76 later this year. So how much time does he have left anyway? I mean, that's the real thing here, right? You've got this frail 76-year-old man. Like, what does, uh, you know, danger does he pose anymore in these types of things? Do you need to be held accountable for your crimes? Absolutely. But the other right we have in our country is that you have to be proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And if there's reasonable doubt, you sure as heck shouldn't be sitting on death row facing execution. Literally, he could have been killed hours away from being executed if his own attorney hadn't stepped in years ago and said, oh, it's my fault that, that I failed him and he had gotten a stay of execution. So th this is a case that just screams that at the least he shouldn't be on death row. I think there's so much reasonable doubt here. I think, like Robin said, we can't 100 percent provide every single thing that says he's guilty. There's some questions you know, like we've mentioned throughout with the bourbon going halfway to the store. But it seems like there's many other things that fall on the other side that he's innocent or at least that there is reasonable doubt here. The fact that he was convicted with all of this kind of shady evidence and strange trickery that was done by the prosecution in, you know, Robert Foster. He's not a real person, you know, and then having Felton Thomas come out 
and holding back certain eyewitness testimony like, oh, you didn't see this. You didn't hear this. All of this stuff. There is reasonable doubt. This should have been overturned. It, it just is so questionable. There's so many things throughout, but yet they stick to their guns with this. And it seems to be a theme throughout. And at the very least, I do think that Tommy deserves additional DNA testing and a new trial or complete exoneration if the results support his innocence. Tommy himself has publicly stated that if the results of the DNA testing proved he was guilty, he would personally write the governor of Florida himself and demand he move forward with his execution. Indeed, if Tommy was guilty all along, he has been incarcerated on death row for the past 45 years, which is no picnic, so justice has technically been served. But if he was innocent, then this is one of the biggest miscarriages of justice of all time. It's the tragic and frightening tale of a man who had a great life stolen away from him because the system went horribly wrong. So at long last, we have finally reached the end of the longest, most convoluted <laughs> episode I've ever done for The Trail Went Cold, and now for The Path Went Chilly. I loved this wild ride. It brought in so many different elements. We had true crime, murder, eyewitness identification. We had a wrongful conviction potentially we have some unprofessional unethical behavior by some of our key players and still we're all left scratching our heads saying what in the heck is happening but that gives me utter confidence to say tommy cannot be executed because if we can't come up with a clear 100 or actually it's 99.9 percent right beyond a reasonable doubt if we can't come up with a story like that, he can't be on death row. And the fact is here, there's a lot of reasonable doubt. And that's the one thing I can be confident about. Yeah, I agree with you. There's so much reasonable doubt here. And like Robin said, I think at the very least, they should be able to go ahead with the DNA testing, especially when we take into consideration that the defense is offering to pay for this DNA testing. So it does feel that, well, Tommy Ziegler's 76. This does feel like a bit of a travesty of justice to hold out on him. He doesn't have that much time left, potentially. I mean, I don't know what the average lifespan is on death row. We know he keeps in shape, but still it has to be one of those things where the stress compounds over time. It has to have some kind of detrimental effect, both mentally and physically on Tommy Ziegler. So it feels like Florida's just kind of dragging their heels here. And to put it bluntly, just waiting for Tommy Ziegler to die. But obviously, Tommy's story is not over yet. And if Monique Worrell does agree to allow new DNA testing, there could be some potential developments in the near future. So once again, I would like to extend my deepest thanks to investigator Lynn Marie Cardi for helping me out on my Trail Went Cold episode all those years ago and working diligently on this case. If you want to learn more, be sure to visit our website, TommyZieglerIsInnocent.com. Believe it or not, there is so much more eye-opening information that we didn't even get around to covering on this podcast because we don't want this series to be 20 episodes long. But uh, whatever happens, I know that Tommy Ziegler's supporters will never stop fighting for him until the day he dies. So if anyone out there has any information which can help Tommy's case, please get in touch with his defense team. So Ashley, Jules, any final thoughts on the case of Tommy Ziegler? I am just grateful for angels out there who do step up to the, you know, they're a bigger call than what they're actually called to do here, where they say, hey, I'm going to use my professional abilities, whether you're a couch sleuth or you're running for the integrity unit or state attorney or you're, an, you're a pro bono attorney. There's so many heroes in our country that step up and give their best work 
for free to try to make sure that the truth and justice is served. So I just think, wow, there's a lot of heroes in this really complicated and really sad case. And um, thanks for sharing it with me, guys. This was a really wild ride when Robin said it was one of his pet cases. And I wasn't familiar with it. Went back and listened, you know, read a bunch on the case, you know, read the script and was like, wow, this is so convoluted. But this is right up Ashley's alley because you've done so much work with wrongful convictions. And I knew this would be a story where you would have such valuable insights and provide a lot more clarity to both Robin and I and the listeners. So this has been a really fun case to do with you both. Thank you guys so much. It was a pleasure. I, I, I love revisiting this and getting to discuss it with other people. I remember when we were looking over potential cases to cover on The Path Went Chilly that I had done on The Trail Went Cold. And uh, and Jules asked me, what's your all-time favorite episode, your pet case? And I said, Tommy Ziegler. But are you really, really sure you want to tackle this one now? Because we're just getting started. We've only done a few episodes and you're not going to find a bigger case than this. So I figured if we can get uh, through this one without you guys suffering a breakdown, then the path is chilly. It's going to have long-term potential. <laughs> we took the trail wind cold approach that you were like, hey, I'm going to get this done early. If I could do this, I could do any case. So now That's we've exactly got the same right. approach. Yeah. That's right. We're bundled up and we're warm and cozy. We're ready to keep <laughs> on going. Yes. So Robin, do you want to tell us about the Trail Went Cold Patreon? Uh, yes, you can find the Trail Went Cold on Patreon. We release uh, one bonus episode per month, which is exclusive, which you can't find on our regular feed. And also for our top tier people, I release commentary tracks for classic Unsolved Mysteries episodes, which uh, where you can download the audio of my commentary and play them while you watch the episode. And uh, we also release our regular episodes early and ad-free, and also Path Went Chilly episodes uh, early as well on the feed. We've just released part one and two of the Judy Smith episodes we did. And uh, yeah, you can find us at patreon.com slash the trail went cold. And I just want to let everyone know, by the time this comes out, we record way in advance. But I think our Patreon will have launched. It'll be June 1st at this point, And it's going to be called Jules and Ashley. And we're going to have early episodes, ad free of Riddle Me That and The Path Went Chili. We're going to have four episodes per month for the highest tier. So if you start at, you know, the lowest one, it'll be one. And then, you know, more subsequent episodes with each tier. So we're really, really excited. We're going to be doing unsolved mysteries, conspiracies, solved cases, disappearances, you know, unsolved murders. So kind of a little bit of everything. Hey, Jules here. I've got a bit of an update on the Tommy Ziegler case that I wanted to add at the end of the episode. So I'm going to read directly from the Tampa Bay Times. It's an article by Leonora Lapeter Anton, who we spoke about earlier in the episode. So this is in regards to the DNA testing that we were speaking about that we were really hoping Tommy Ziegler would get. So, quote, An Orange County prosecutor has upended decades of rejections by the Florida judicial system agreeing to support death row inmate Tommy Ziegler's request for DNA testing. Ninth Judicial State Attorney Monique H. Worrell will back the effort, which has been denied at least six times over two decades. An agreement signed by one of her assistant state attorneys on May 18th releases all of the evidence in Ziegler's case to his attorneys for testing at a lab certified by the American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors. Ziegler was elated with the news, end quote. Coincidentally, this happened on the exact same day that we dropped part one of our series. So Ashley, Robin, and I were really, really excited. So we thought we'd wait till the end of the series to share this with you guys if you hadn't seen it already. 
So I want to thank you all for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget that we are brand new. And any chance you have to share us on social media with a friend or to rate and review is greatly appreciated. You can email us at thepathwentchili at gmail.com. You can reach us on Twitter at thepathwentchili. So until next time, be sure to bundle up because cold trails and chilly paths call for warm clothing. Music by Paul Rich from the podcast Cold Callers Comedy. Hi, Charlie here. I'm the host of a podcast called Crime Lines. Each week I go in depth about a true crime case, organizing the information in an easy to follow manner and providing context to what has happened. I keep things conversational so you don't realize how much you're learning. And we'll just ignore the fact that I'm talking to myself in my basement. You can find Crime Lines on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.